And so many times it's like the inside of me needs somebody to sort of lay a nice path of words and truth and things that will really help lead me towards a better place. Hey, if you're in grade six to eight, the class is starting now for you, grade six to eight. Do we have any grade six to eights here this morning? We got some, okay. So your class is, is starting right now. So I encourage you guys to go. If you're, if you're staying and you're not in grade six to eight, let me encourage you to turn to Luke chapter six. Um, there's Bibles in the bench in front of you. Uh, Luke chapter six. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find all those together, closer to the back than the front. And uh, Luke, look for the big number six. All right. Let me read this to you today, starting at verse 17. It's all about Jesus. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. For you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. This week we're kicking off a brand new teaching series. It's called Plain and Simple. Plain and Simple. And it's a bit of a play on words. This passage of scripture is often called the Sermon on the Plain. And the thing about the Sermon on the Plain is people don't really know if it's the same as the Sermon on the Mount. You say, well, how could that be the same? How could the Sermon on the Mountain and the Sermon on the Plain be the same thing? But there's a couple theories. Let me just share them real quick. One theory is that perhaps uh, on the hill or on the mountain that Jesus delivered his most famous of all sermons, that there was a plateau or a level place that they went down to and that he delivered his message. So whereas Matthew records Jesus going up, Luke records Jesus coming down, uh, that it could be that there was a bit of hill climbing that actually happened in the exact same experience and that what Matthew writes about and what Luke writes about These two messages that have almost all the same ingredients in it were actually the same thing. So that's a possibility. The other possibility is that Jesus' teaching, this is Jesus' teaching of sort of the ethical teaching for his followers, that that teaching he repeated many times. And now you think about leaders who are trying to get a message across, whether that's political leaders or or, uh, leaders in any sort of business world or in a school system or something like that, they repeat, 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 repeat their main points because it takes a while for people to really absorb it all. Well, the early church had so absorbed this teaching, the teaching that we're going to go through in the next three weeks, they'd so absorbed it that you see it showing up again. They're easily regurgitating it. In fact, Romans chapter 12 Some of you guys remember that from a year ago as a church. We we took several weeks to go through Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 has another mini version of the Sermon on the Mount or plain or both together, whatever theory we ascribe to. And that was written, many people believe it was written by Paul. And Paul was not actually there in person when the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain was given. Now, Jesus revealed himself to Paul, so maybe Paul, in that revelation of Jesus that, that uh, we don't know the full package of what happened there, maybe that's where he received that same teaching. But I'm willing to bet that all of the early disciples 
knew this teaching by heart. This kind of teaching about radical love, love for enemies, uh, radical generosity, giving way above and beyond what would normally be expected, and so many other things, that this teaching was core to how they lived. And so when Paul wrote to the Romans, he regurgitated these same words. And, and of course, Jesus' earliest disciples, the ones who were the eyewitnesses of his life, uh, really centered in on this, this ethical teaching that's found in the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, or if they're the same, uh, this teaching. So this content was pretty important to the, to the early church. Um, there were radical new ideas. They really were radical new, new ideas. So radical that even today, if you followed the radical ideas of this teaching, it would be still radical. It's not 2,000 years old that, oh, now everybody does that now. It still is radical. Loving your enemies is still not the norm. It's very, very rare. Blessing those who curse you is not the norm. Just try driving in traffic sometime. You'll realize that when someone gives you that gesture that signifies they're displeased with your driving, that your immediate response is not, Lord, would you bless them and give them a wonderful day? The teachings of Jesus to love your enemies, bless those who curse you, pray for those who persecute you. Here's, a, here's one that you'll find. I don't want to steal all the thunder from the next two weeks because that would be unfair to Chris Drennan and to Ron Francis who are going to teach the next two. But here's one I want to throw out to you that, I mean, it just really got me when I was reading ahead. Lend to your enemies and don't expect them to pay you back. So if someone has really set themselves as your enemy in your life and they say, hey, I'm your enemy. I'm going to just, I am going to use all the hatred that's in my heart towards you to make your life miserable. Your response is not normally like, hey, would you like a personal loan? And by the way, I have no expectation that you'll pay me back. This is radical stuff. This is not the norm. And uh, it's life changing stuff, it's culture changing stuff. It's world-changing stuff. Jesus is presenting a kingdom that's not of this world. In fact, it flips the ideas of this world on its head. This upside-down kingdom has some really radical ideas in it. And, and this week, to sort of set up our series, I want to talk about what I think fuels the upside-down radical ideas of Jesus. We're, we're teaching in our... Um, our Hearing God Seminar, we're, we just finished week three. Uh, 100 people are, have signed up for this course, and we're really excited. Lots of people have gone through it last year, and now a whole bunch of new people are going through this year. But one of the things we taught in the last two weeks is that we, we gave people a little bit of a, a, a simple trick to help them to, when they read the Bible, to, to see stuff that's there. And uh, we gave them an acrostic. It's, it spells CAMP, C-A-M-P, and then at the end it's W-S. So it basically is asking yourself questions when you're reading the Bible. Is there a command, C, is there a command that I should be, that I see here? Is there an application, A, is there an application that, that maybe jumps out at me? M, is there a message in this that I should be noticing? What about a promise, P, is there a promise? That's camp so far. Is there a promise that, that jumps out at me? What about W, warning? Is there a warning here I should heed? And then S, sin. Is there some sin that this scripture points out to me that I should confess? Right? So camp, WS. So we've been saying, just use this when you read scripture, ask these uh, six questions, and you'll get more out. You'll start noticing stuff in there. When I take that same acrostic to this passage of scripture, what I notice is it is full of P's. It's full of promises. And there's really only one command. There's only really one command. The guys who get to preach the next two weeks, they get ones that are loaded with commands of to-dos and how these ethical things you should do. This one is really full of promises. I think that's on purpose. Before we get to the what to do 
as a follower of Jesus, I think it's incredibly important to be fueled by the promises of God. By the things that where, where Jesus says, you can trust me because of these things. I think that's where it starts. Once we have that faith and trust in Jesus, we're set up for being able to do the work of Jesus. But first, the transformation has to happen in the heart. And that's what we're going to look at today. So let's go through some of the promises. And we'll look at that command and we'll see where God leads us. So the first thing you notice is everything's paired up, right? For every blessing, there's a matching woe. Okay? Woe. We don't use that much anymore, do we? Woe to you. You didn't. Whatever. Woe. Woe. I don't know how to use it. I'm not quite sure. I'm out of practice, obviously. I just don't use it very much in my life. But let's look at how they're matched up. The first blessing and woe combo that we see is this combo of poor and rich. Okay? Listen to that, how, how Jesus said it. He said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then on the flip side, he says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. So blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, you've already received your comfort. If you're familiar with Matthew's um, recording of this sermon, you'll notice that here in Luke, the woe part is not actually included in Matthew. Matthew's recording of the Sermon on the Mount is much bigger than this. Luke's recording is smaller. Now, I think it has a lot to do with their audiences. Matthew wrote for Jewish people. And so he wrote about a lot of things that Jewish people would understand or would need to grapple with. Like how they, how they were in their culture. Luke, he writes for a non-Jewish audience to Gentiles. And so a lot of the things that are really more Jewish-specific isn't in his, his recording. So, so Luke's sermon version or sermon notes are much shorter. They're, it's like the, the calorie-reduced version of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's written specifically for Gentiles. But this teaching, um, you know, I thought I'd just point that out. This is, this is um, helpful. So the woes, but the woe part is the part that Luke records and Matthew doesn't. So we pay special attention to them. That when Matthew writes, he writes these very same things. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. But there's a matching part that Luke records uh, that is a balance to it. Woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Jesus, later on, is gonna, he's going to tell a parable. Um, later on in Luke chapter 12, he's going to tell this parable. Let me read it to you. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. And build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. One of the greatest deterrents to giving, or radical giving, because remember, that's where we're going to go in the next couple weeks. We're going to talk about radical giving, sacrificial giving, giving that doesn't even make sense in our culture today. That level of giving that really is off the charts. One of the greatest deterrents to that level of giving is thinking that this life is all there is. So we see this rich man, and he has a big farm, and, and he, he was just so much grain that he couldn't store it. And I'm just going to lay up for myself so much wealth that I'm going to just take it easy. I'm going to just live an easy life. And, and uh, really, he's only thinking about himself when you, when you see his words. And God says, uh, you're a fool. You're only thinking about yourself. And he doesn't go on to say, you didn't give to others, I, though that's the natural progression. 
But at this point, he says, your big issue is you are not rich towards God. You're rich in a certain way, but you're not rich towards God. Now, the the natural progression is that when people are rich towards God, or their life is aligned with God, or they identify with this Jesus who they follow, the natural progression is that they, they discover God's heart for others and they begin to give. That's the natural progression. Once you say, God, all that I am and all that I have is yours, you start finding out that Jesus starts writing checks on your account. <laughs> because he loves the world. He loves the world. His love for your neighbor is greater than your love for your neighbor. And so you'll find that that's the natural progression. But it starts with this very first part, and that is becoming rich towards God. Now let's just talk about being rich. I don't think there's anything wrong with being rich. But there's a tricky tightrope walk with riches and the believer. Let me share uh, 1 Timothy and... um, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. You say, oh man, we're in trouble because we all want to get rich. I mean, honestly, probably we all do have that desire somewhere in our catalog of motivations and things that we want. We all wouldn't mind uh, being rich. But those who want to get rich, I think what we're talking about here is what is your primary motivation? What is your primary motivation? Money can be a huge motivator. It is a huge motivator in our society. We we can't, we just cannot stop swimming in a materialistic culture. We are always surrounded by it. There's always some sort of message about more, you need more, you need this, you need that. Money's the means to get this and that and all that will make you happy. And the people who've gotten this and that, they realize that this and that didn't make them happy, so they have to get that and the other thing. There's still more. It's a never-ending pursuit. It's a never-ending quest. But it's a huge pull in our culture, massive pull. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that come with it, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. We often think of money as our servant, and really that's how it should be. It should be our money, we should, you know, obviously that's what you do with your budget, right? You make a budget, and that's telling your money where to go, right? You're in charge when you have a budget, and you actually follow it. And you actually follow it, right? You're telling your money where it should go. You're prioritizing. You're saying, these are the things that I value, right? You can look at, if you look at someone's checkbook, you look at someone's bank, online banking ledger, you look at... Um, their budget, you get ideas about things that they value, what things are important. But money's not always a servant. Money is always trying to climb up into the the lead seat to be the master. That's why Jesus taught that uh, you can't serve both God and money. You can't have them both be your primary motivation in life. One will be supreme over the other in your heart. You can't have them both. You'll hate one and you'll love the other. Eventually, that'll be the progression. One will become, the love for one will grow distant more and more and more as the love for the other becomes supreme. So either it's going to be God over money or it's going to be money over God. Now, being rich isn't a sin, but I just want to point out that there's danger in how we view money. Money is a miserly master that shrinks the soul. And our main priority is to be rich towards God. And the natural progression of that is expressed in giving to others as God leads us. I know some people practically have just figured, just boiled this down to simple formulas. I know some people, they just say, I, I, I make it my priority to give 10% of my income. I make it my priority to save 10% of my income. And then I live on 80% of my income. Some people have like very cut and dried ways of, telling their money where to go, right? 
of figuring it out, of having their priority. I think it's really good. I think you should probably encourage your kids at the youngest ages that you possibly can to use and handle money and prioritize uh, giving at the beginning. Because this is a trust issue with God. It's a trust issue with God. His promise, he's promising a great reversal. He's saying, you follow me and you're poor, don't worry, you'll be rich. Not rich necessarily here on this earth, don't get confused, but your reward is in heaven. But he, here, listen to this though. The struggle, every one of you in this culture, will, there's no way you will not struggle with trusting God with money. There's no way. But that struggle, it, that battle can be won. I struggled incredibly with trusting God with my money. I struggled in huge ways to decide, am I going to give? Am I going to give regularly? Am I going to just trust that God's going to make the, you know, provide for my needs? I struggled massively in that. You know when I struggled the most? When I was 11. The reason I struggled the most when I was 11 was because that's when I was starting to get allowances. And my parents would always dole it out in dimes because then it could be divided by 10. They were setting me up for the crisis, the faith crisis, because now I actually had the means to give every week in church because I could divide by 10. But every week, I deliberated over dimes. And some weeks I gave them, and some weeks I kept them. And I knew. I knew this was a trust thing. Is God's kingdom, this great reversal, is it really worth it? Is, it really, is he really going to care for me? Is he really going to provide for me? Is there, can I really trust him? I knew, actually I didn't know until years later, how much my own parents struggled with it. So while they were struggling to trust God with finances, they threw us in the same battle and let us struggle. I'm so thankful that I did all my struggling with dimes. It was nothing compared to what my parents were struggling with. And because finally that struggle was finished, as a child, when I became a teenager and started getting real money at a summer job, it was automatic. Well, we give to God first. That's what we do. Because we trust God, because we honor God, because we hope in the lifetime to be able to free up a, a river of finances for the kingdom of God. So when I got that first paycheck from the cheese factory, that's where I worked my first job, I was making $8 an hour and my friends were only making four fifty. I was rich. And the fight with God over money was in the rear view. So I didn't struggle with that first paycheck in being able to, to give towards God. Because my parents were smart enough to realize that the thing they struggled with as adults, they didn't want us to struggle with as adults. They wanted that battle to be over before we got into a, a harder place. So that's my advice to you. Encourage your kids. Let your kids fight spiritual battles. God will speak to your kids. God will convict kids. Speaks to them a lot better than he speaks to us sometimes. No, not that he doesn't speak. We listen less than his speaking is no problem. Our listening sometimes. Listen to what he says. He says, those who are rich have received their comfort. There's no eternal comfort with wealth. There's no eternal comfort with wealth. I mean, if you have wealth, it won't bring you comfort past this life. But if you're rich towards God, if your trust is in God, that will bring you real comfort. Let's look at the second one. The second sort of reversal, that this great reversals that Jesus is talking about. And this is being hungry and well-fed. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you'll be satisfied. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. I was reading a blog of uh, 
an organization called CAP, C-A-P, Christians Against Poverty. And what they were doing, they were doing an experiment. All their staff who are running this organization were going to do a week without. So they were trying to really get into the lives of the clients that they work with, a lot of them who are in high debt and trying to dig themselves out or they've had sudden financial crises in their lives and now it was very hard for them to make ends meet. So the one guy, I read his blog, he was trying to eat every week on $11.50. That was his goal. And he was going to do this for a few weeks. So I'm reading and it's like a daily blog and he's like, today I woke up thinking about food. I wanted to sleep, but I was so hungry, I thought, i got to find a place where I can find food. So he tells about how he went to soup kitchens. He tells about when he, he would go to churches because they had a potluck. He didn't choose his church by what church he liked or what kind of flavor of church he liked. He went because they had food. He said, after a week, or I think it might have been even two weeks, where he was doing this, he says, I really understood what the real life of many people is like. That they're always strategizing. One woman, she wrote about how she, she served at um, some sort of function and they had free muffins. And she said, I ate more muffins than anyone should ever eat. Because she didn't know where the next meal was coming from. Hungry. Ever been hungry? I think we've all experienced only maybe we've experienced some hunger maybe you've experienced more hunger than others and this one ties in pretty close to poverty I remember when I was a kid I heard about the poverty line and that if you were below the poverty line you were poor and so I asked my mom and dad I said to help me figure it out so we took the poverty line it's different when you have seven kids because then the poverty line um, is is really low, <laughs> actually. It's e- so, it, or, or is it really high? Yeah, the, it's really high, so it's easy to get under. All right. So my mom wasn't working. We had seven kids, and just my dad worked. And I did the math, and then I realized, to my horror, we were poor. Now I hadn't known we were poor until I did this exercise. I thought we were rich. Uh, we had our own house. In fact, probably around that time in my life is when we paid off the mortgage. So we were mortgage-free in our own house. We had our own car. We had a big blue Mercury Meteor station wagon. It was the size of a Meteor. (laughs) And in fact, if you had taken a Meteor and put wheels under it, it would have the same gas mileage as this vehicle. (laughs) But it was paid for. We had a house paid for, a car paid for, and then I realized we were poor. Up until that time, I thought we had sugar on our porridge. We even had raisins in our porridge sometimes. I thought, we're not poor, but now I knew we were poor. I remember telling my two friends, Jason and DK, on the way home from school, you know what, guys? We're poor. (laughs) They're like, you're poor? I'm like, yeah, I just figured it out. Did the math myself. (laughs) Now, compared to 95, at least, percentage of the world, we were fabulously wealthy. But poor is relative, right? You're always poorer than somebody You can be decently well off, but then looking sort of to someone who's much richer and think you're poor. And so I thought I was poor. My joke about being poor that I used to tell, it doesn't make sense to younger generations now, but in order to understand it, you'd have to know that Kentucky Fried Chicken had this commercial that said, and a little jingle that said, their chicken was finger-licking good. And I used to say that we were so poor... Oh, good for you. We were so poor, we would go to KFC just to lick other people's fingers. (laughs) Anyhow. (laughs) Oh, everybody with OCD is just squirming and they're, oh, sorry. (laughs) Don't think of germs. Don't think of germs. Anyhow. We weren't poor. We weren't poor. In fact, my mom would tell us we weren't poor. I'd say, man, we're poor. And my mom would say, you're not poor. You're rich brothers and sisters. <laughs> and I would say, like, well, can I cash one of them in then? <laughs> so, but real hunger, real hunger, and real, uh, real need is a different thing. 
Let me read to you again out of the book of Luke, one of Jesus' stories about real hunger for those, one who's well-fed and one who is in hunger. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. That's a perfect description. The poor man longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So it wasn't just, it wasn't just lack of food, but he had other challenges as well. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Here's this great reversal. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been put in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. A little bit of foreshadowing because Jesus himself, what would rise from the dead. So blessed are the hungry, but woe to those who are well fed. It seems like packaged in all of Jesus' teaching on this being well fed. Is there anything wrong with having a nutritional, good, well fed diet? I don't think that's wrong. But here again, it was having all that and yet being totally unconcerned. It's very similar to the money, being rich towards God. See, Jesus, something that, you, that helps clarify this passage for me is this whole passage is not writing about rich and poor generically or hungry and well-fed generically. It's writing about people who would be followers of Jesus. We learn that in later, we, we see that at the beginning. He's speaking to his disciples. We see that in the middle where it, it shows that not only is he speaking to his disciples, but he says, um, and we'll get to this in a bit, but he says basically, because of the Son of Man. If you're experiencing these disadvantaged positions in your life, these bad circumstances, because of your followership of me, because you're my follower, you're blessed. And great is your reward in heaven. So just in case, I know sometimes we like to take these things out of context and we say, this is what Jesus said about the rich, this is what Jesus said about the poor. He's actually speaking, and he does say stuff about the rich and poor and has a huge heart for the rich and poor. And the more you get into Jesus, the more you're going to have a huge heart for the, for, not for the rich, for the poor. <laughs> well, the rich, you'll have a heart for them too, to rebuke them with woes. But uh, <laughs> just kidding. Well, no, I'm not totally kidding. Anyhow. But this part is about, he's, he's speaking to people who would follow him. And that following him may lead them into difficult circumstances. And when that happens, here are these promises that I give you to fuel your faith to radical love. To fuel your faith to radical generosity. So that there is something inside of you that springs up into radical behavior that the world has never known. That isn't logical. The only way it could be logical, the only way you could figure it out that this is how people are acting this way is they must believe. They must believe this Jesus. That's the only way their lifestyle could make sense is because they must believe. So that helps us to understand. Let me keep moving here. Weeping and laughing. Don't envy those 
Let me, I'll read it to you real quick and then we'll, we'll go. Weeping and laughing. Blessed are you who weep now for you will laugh. And then the second part. Oh, sorry. Woe to you who laugh now for you will mourn and weep. I want to encourage you. Don't envy those who laugh now appearing to be living without a care in the world. But feel sorry for those who might miss out on the laughter and joy that's found in the presence of God. In fact, Revelation tells us about this incredible banquet feast that people who are followers of God will participate in. Revelation, um, I can't read it here. 10, I think it is. No, yeah. Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad. And give him glory. For the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to, for her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the land. Of the lamb. Sorry. So this, it's a metaphor. God is like a groom and, and we are like a bride. And basically it's this awesome coming together in relationship. We have a relationship with God now as followers of Jesus, but it's, it's through a glass that's dark, and we, it's not really super clear. But it will be clear. It will be more intimate even than it is now. And blessed are the ones who get to be there, who are there because of their relationship with Christ. So right now, again, the world is always showing us pictures. Thanks to Instagram, you can even filter those pictures of happiness and blissfulness and how life is all working out. That's not the true picture for most people, to be honest. But also realize that's not the forever picture. Jesus talks about a great reversal even in that area. And then let me talk about this last one. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. And the woe is, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how the ancestors treated the false prophets. I, I see a progression here. Someone hates you, that's internal. You might never know they hate you. Insult or excludes you. That's sort of like the passive part of passive aggressive, right? So the passive part is like, well, we just won't include them. So that's a step further than just sort of hating someone in your heart. And then insult you. That's like the aggressive part, right? It's like, well, why did you exclude me from? Because you're whatever. Insult. So hate you, exclude you, insult you. And then here's the last part. Reject your name as evil. Ooh, that's getting really nasty. It's like they use your name as a curse word. says, when you experience this, well, let me ask this. When you experience this, this full progression, this full manifestation of hate, how are you going to respond with radical love? How are you going to do what we're going to learn about in the next couple weeks? I believe the only way you can do it is by faith. Trusting in what Jesus says. And what does Jesus says? He says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. Now the reward in heaven, I, always, I used to talk to my dad about this quite a bit growing up and we used to banter back and forth on what, what kind of rewards it really was. The longer I'm in this, the more I realize that it's God, is the, God is our reward. <laughs> uh, God obviously gives lots of blessings from his hand, but it's really him himself that is the ultimate blessing. If it was something that he could give us that we were living for, that would actually be a tricky form of idolatry because we would value it above him. But when we value him, as ultimate, as he becomes more and more in our lives our greatest treasure, our greatest hope, the thing we, we look to and the thing that we're expecting, 
then great is that reward. Incredibly great in that reward. So he's saying, you're going to come follow me? If you're going to come follow me, let me tell you honestly about the hardships that might await you. People may hate you to a very extreme level. Jesus had seasons where he was very popular among the masses. But that wasn't forever. That wasn't forever. In fact, the more Jesus talked about taking up your cross and following him, the more some of the crowds thinned out and said, I'm not up for this. I don't really want the values of this upside-down kingdom. I want the values of the present kingdom I live under. I don't really want to forsake materialism. I don't really want to uh, forsake uh, being my own boss. I really don't want to forsake those things for this Jesus. I actually, and many turned away. I think it was a gracious thing that Jesus did by making his by, by being up front with the reality of poverty and hunger and weeping and being hated. Because he wasn't sugarcoating the cost of following him. It's a great kindness. It seems like cruelty to be told those things, but it's a great kindness to know what you're getting into. And so people would take stock and they say, God's promise for me is not an easy life now, but God's promise for me is that I will get him as a reward for following him. I can have Jesus, but I may lose all sorts of other things. So you see hymn writers write things like, take this whole world, but give me Jesus. They understand the possible repercussions for this faith. Jesus says, when you experience hatred because of the Son of Man, Rejoice, rejoice, be full of joy. He says, leap for joy, jump for joy. Whoa. Can you manufacture that? Is that natural within you? I don't think it's natural within any of us. I think it's a supernatural work of God that he has to do in the human heart, that we believe him, that we come with we, we come to, to believe in his promises that what he has said, that there will be this great reversal where it looks like all you got for following Jesus was poverty and hunger and weeping and hatred. That all of that is going to be flipped on its head. That all of that is going to be reversed. And as we trust in God, he leads us into this place where we can live in those situations and leap for joy. Because of what we have. Because we have all the riches of our Heavenly Father. Because we have what our heart has always longed for. The love of God. So we're empowered to do the things that we'll yet learn about. We're empowered to love our enemies. We're empowered to give radically. Because our heart isn't wrapped up around our money. Our heart isn't wrapped up around being popular. We're in love with Jesus. And it's all by faith. In Hebrews it says, without faith it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly Seek him. See, Jesus is calling for his followers to live by faith a different value system. Not based on money and popularity, but rather faith and rejoicing in God. The faith, and this faith is not, it's not threatened by losing money and popularity. Because those things are not its treasure. All the patterns that you're going to learn about in the next two weeks with Chris and with Ron, all the patterns of behavior which are really challenging are rooted in freedom from self-preoccupation, freedom from self-infatuation, 
freedom from self-exaltation. They are rooted in Christ's preoccupation, Christ's infatuation, and Christ's exaltation. They're, rooting in, they're rooted in, in uh, moving away from I am all to Christ is all. It comes from faith in Christ, trusting his character, trusting his word, treasuring who he is, and then radical loving, radical giving, holy living, helping others in radical ways has its foundation in the confidence that the God who promises the great reversal will will fulfill it. That joy, true joy, comes from delighting in God and nothing else the world offers can make you as happy. So Jesus calls us, come follow me. And he doesn't promise an easy path, but he promises that what you give up will not compare to what you receive. That when you surrender something, you open your hand and you say, God, you can take this if you want. That if God ever was to take something out of your life, that what he would replace it with is far better. That the things that our hearts love and latch onto now will be replaced with himself. And that will bring a joy that we cannot get anywhere else. So that's the fuel. That's the engine. That's the, that's the, that's the what, it's that faith in Christ that he'll keep his promises, that he's the greatest treasure. That is what will enable us to experience injustice against ourselves and respond with mercy and grace. What Jesus calls people to do is impossible. I've tried a lot of it on my own and wasn't very successful, but he can do it, and he can do it through you, and he can do it through me. But it calls for a surrender, and it calls for faith calls for a trust in him to say, yes, the promises that you made, I'm holding on to those. The goodness of your character, I'm holding on to those. You know, I met a friend of mine just a, a week ago. I, I met a friend I hadn't seen for about 20 years. We went to Bible college together. I asked about uh, her journey in the last 20 years, and she said, everything I thought I knew has been undone. Everything I thought I knew about God and the Bible and faith and all these things, I've had to rethink. Real life shook all sorts of things in her life. She says, the thing at the end of the day, though, that I hang on to, and I hang on to with all my might, is that God is good. And that has taken me through. I pray for you and for me that we'll both find that. Let's stand together. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much. I thank you so much. There's so many words of scripture that are like a healing balm, and then there's words that are like, well, they're a little more in your face, and I thank you that out of your kindness and mercy. You don't withhold the warnings that our soul needs. I thank you that your scripture shows us the pitfalls that are so common in humanity that we can fall into. Loving money or living for the praise of people. God, I thank you that your word just points those out and puts red flags all around them and says, just don't go here. This will kill your soul. And at the same time, you say, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your soul. Take my yoke upon me. Learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Lord, I pray that we 
would be very aware of the siren songs of our culture, which are calling us to love money, to seek the praise of men, and for those things to be elevated in our lives above you. I pray that we would be aware, 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 aware. We wouldn't just walk like zombies in a culture unaware of our surroundings. We'd notice it. Lord, make us sharpen our discernment, sharpen our conscience, Lord Jesus. And Lord, may, I pray that that decision would become very tangible to choose you over uh, other affections. I pray what Jonathan Edwards prayed, that you give us the power of a brand new affection to replace old affections. I thank you, Lord, that you loved us first. I thank you, Lord, that you love us most. I thank you, Lord, that you demonstrated your love. It wasn't just words, but it was displayed on the cross. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for the clarity that you can bring to our lives. We ask for it. We beg for it, Lord Jesus. Make it clear. Help us walk with you, for you. Be rich towards you, Lord Jesus. To put our faith firmly in your hands and to experience all that you have for us. And thank you that you are our great reward, both here and for eternity. In your name, amen. Hey, this morning, and just we're going to dismiss. We, we're a little bit after time, so we're going to dismiss here at this time. If you have something that you'd like someone to pray with you about, maybe it's what I talked about this morning, or maybe it's something completely different, there's prayer teams that are going to be available here. We'd love to pray with you. Also, I want to invite you back for prayer summit tonight. And just this one thing, tonight we're going to pray for the sick. So if you know people who are sick and uh, need to be prayed for, Tonight, we're going to spend special time at our prayer summit praying for the sick. So we invite you to come. It's from 6 to 7.30 tonight. God bless you guys. And uh, we'll see many of you back here tonight. So.